Um, please grab your Bibles. We're going to continue our mosey on through Matthew 9, 14 to 34. I'm going to read it and then I'll explain it. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they'll fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins if they do, Skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came, knelt before him, and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I'll be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman woman was healed from that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it's by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. This is God's word. Let's pray. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for your word, which is true, which is the words of eternal life, which shows us how to live eternally and live today. Lord, help us to understand the great significance of this passage of Scripture for us. Help us to see Jesus in all his glory afresh this morning. Clear our minds of distractions and help us to focus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what a passage of scripture uh, this is. I want to read to you from 2 Corinthians 5 because it's really going to be helpful in us applying this passage to our lives. 2 Corinthians says, Christ's love compels us. We looked at it yesterday at our um, leadership team conference. Because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Christ's love compels us. Another way to say that is grace. God's grace to us motivates us to live our lives for Jesus. And I think, as I've said, the addition of grace to our church's name would be a stunning, beautiful addition that reminds us both of who we are, people saved by God's grace, and it reminds us what we're living for, the ministry of sharing God's grace with the world, starting with Gregory Hills and Glenswood Hills. It's that brilliantly simple. It would be a great addition to our church's name and also our parish's name. But we're still in the process of welcoming feedback, and I do welcome your feedback. In the Old Testament, God's people lived under the law, and the law was a grace to them because it showed them how to live and set them apart as God's chosen and precious people. They lived under the sacrificial system and they did not have the absolute assurance of salvation as we did who live this side of Christ. Christ is our great once-for-all sacrifice. As Christians, we no longer live for ourselves and the desires of our own heart and our own flesh. We now live for Jesus. The old has gone, the desires of the flesh the new has come, the desire to live for Christ. That has happened in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. But sometimes it's just hard to let go, isn't it? It's hard to change. It's hard to accept change in your life. We get stuck in our ways. I bet you can think of changes that you resisted in your life that turned out to be really good changes in the end, and you look back and you thought, why did I resist that? That was, that was a really good thing. But we, we do. We resist change and we struggle with change, even when those changes turn out to be fantastic. And it's not our church name change that I'm talking about, it's the coming of Christ that I'm talking about, and many resisted Him, and for many of them it was understandable. Jesus is new, and new is sometimes scary, even if it's brilliant, which of course it is when it comes to Christ. Even though Jesus clearly demonstrated the glory of the new before their very eyes in the way he taught, in the miracles he performed, he demonstrated the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy leading to this point. He is the one great Messiah that the prophets of old talked about would come, but still many resisted and found it hard to accept that this was the Christ. Christians rightly view the time in which we live as the last days, the middle of the screen up there, or the messianic age, the age in which the Messiah has come into the world and will come again. Because of the coming of Jesus, we, our whole calendar is based on the coming of Jesus. Before Christ, BC, Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. Back in the day, the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
is what Anno Domini means. Our whole calendar is based on this reality that because Jesus has come, the last days have been triggered. We live in the last days, the Messianic age, the Old Testament built up to the year zero when the Messiah would come. Jesus revealed God to the world in himself, in his teaching, in his miracle working, most clearly in his death and his resurrection. Jesus has paid for the sins of those who put their trust in him by dying on the cross. Jesus has been risen to new life. Jesus has ascended into heaven. He has poured out his Holy Spirit on his people so that they may be empowered to preach the good news of salvation to the world around them. That's all done. And we now live in the last days. The only thing Jesus has left to do is to return in judgment. And he's given us the ministry of reconciliation in these last days. That's what he's given us to do. So we exist in these last few days to preach the gospel so that others might repent and believe and enjoy the same salvation that we enjoy before Jesus returns as king in judgment, symbolised by the crown. And that day will be too late for people to put their trust in Jesus. So the big question is, what does it mean for us as the people of God to live in these last days? Are we to hurriedly get the best education we possibly can? Are we to amass the most wealth that we possibly can? Are we to make the most positive impact on this perishing world that we can for some good cause other than sharing the gospel? Are we just here to have as much fun and be as comfortable as we can until we die? Is that what we're here for? Or is there something much greater upon which we are to have our focus? It's good and right to get an education. It's good and right to get a great job. It's good and right to have fun sometimes. Comfort is nice. But it's not our singular focus as followers of Jesus. We've been given the ministry, we've been given a task from our Lord, from our Saviour, the ministry of reconciliation. That's our focus, helping people put their trust in Jesus. So, in, from Matthew chapter 9, we, re, we get this first-hand lesson from Jesus on what it means to live in the last days, the Messianic age. Jesus has ushered in a new age and it starts, this passage starts with this interesting question, a really important question that it's kind of easy to sort of skate over. So I'm going to show you again, look again at your Bible. In verse 14, John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So these are, these are, these are people who are sympathetic to Jesus, they're not opponents of Jesus. It's a fair question that they ask. How come we're fasting but your disciples are not fasting? Jesus' disciples are not fasting. Occasional fasting in the Old Testament is most often an expression of mourning. That's what fasting is all about in the Bible, mourning. Especially on account of spiritual failure 
and always in the hope of finding mercy from God again. That's why people fasted. In Judges 20.26 on the screen, civil war broke out in Israel and we read, Then all the Israelites, the whole army, went up to Bethel. There they sat weeping before the Lord. They fasted that day until evening and presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings to the Lord. Fasting, weeping, mourning. All goes hand in hand. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6, <clears throat> after the Ark of the Covenant had been stolen and returned, they realised they'd sinned, God's people. When they'd assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord, like a mass of tears, like a mass of weeping. They poured out the water. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we've sinned against the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, he finds out that Jerusalem's basically a train wreck, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Mourning and fasting, again, two sides of the same coin. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, return to me with fasting and weeping and mourning. God calls upon his people who have strayed, to turn back to him and to weep and mourn and fast. Fasting is a way to express mourning, particularly mourning for sin. When you recognise things aren't the way God wants them to be, there's fasting, there's weeping, there's mourning. And even more significantly, we'll see Jesus himself equates fasting with mourning in this context. So, why the mourning in this context? Well, I'll put this question back on the screen. How is it that we, the Pharisees, fast, but your disciples don't? Well, by the time of John the Baptist, the small remnant of Israel are living under the rule of the Romans, God's people. Under Roman rule, they're paying taxes to Caesar. They've got a puppet king, Herod. And any faithful Jew knows that this is not right. And any faithful Jew knows that they're desperate for a saviour. They're trapped. They're there as a result of spiritual failure, which is why faithful Jews in the New Testament can be described as those who are longing for the consolation of Israel, the rescue, like Simeon in Luke's Gospel. Those who want to see God restore the kingdom, perhaps to how it was in the glory days, but definitely better to what it is now, trapped under Roman rule. Hence, an important part of their religious expression included mourning as they're trapped in this situation which they signified by periodic fasting mourning fasting it was good and right to mourn for john's disciples for the jews given the state of the world and the predicament they were in in the world if jesus and his disciples don't fast you can understand why they're wondering why why aren't you fasting is it that Jesus doesn't care about the fact that Israel is under God's judgment? Well, no, he cares more than anyone, of course. He's very concerned about the plight of Israel and he's come to deal with it. Jesus knows something that John's disciples and the Pharisees are yet to understand. Jesus answers the question, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? In the Old Testament, Israel is likened to a bride and God a bridegroom who takes care of her for her good. 
Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with them. He's literally, physically with his people at this time. He's not absent in judgment, but he's present in mercy and restoration. So now's not the time for mourning and fasting. Now's the time for rejoicing, for God has come. Emmanuel is God with us. Jesus is here. It's time to celebrate. He lets them know there will be a time when he'll be taken from them and they will mourn. But right now, he's there. There will be a time when God absents himself from his people again in the greatest act of judgment when Jesus goes to the cross. But even then, it will be for a short while and God will be with his people again. Jesus died on the cross to bear the sins of Israel and to bear the sins of you and me. And he rose again in glory. It was temporary. Jesus did not leave his people trapped in Rome. He didn't leave them as orphans. He died and he rose and he poured out his Holy Spirit. So now today, God is with us always by his Holy Spirit. Emmanuel, God is with us. That is why there's no longer a requirement for fasting or abstaining from certain foods for the people of God. There's no requirement anymore. Christians are free to fast if they want, and they do so for many and various good reasons, but there's no requirement for us to do so. Now's the time for celebration. Now is the time for celebration. God is with us by His Holy Spirit. Jesus has come. He has poured out His Spirit. Now's the time to celebrate. Back to verse 15. If God, the bridegroom, has come among His people, it's an indication of religious change. Jesus is bringing about something new. But you and I know change can be hard. Change can be difficult, can't it? We don't like change. We get nervous about change. And so we can understand we can understand how hard it must have been for people whose whole lives have been dedicated to these religious practices. And Jesus is saying, Those sacrifices are no longer required. I am the one great and true sacrifices. The law keeping is no longer required in the same way. I am perfectly keeping the law on your behalf. All you need to do is trust in me. It would have been hard for them to let go of these religious practices that they've become accustomed to. But he assures his people to get on board. Look at verse 16 and 17 in your Bibles. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth in an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Apparently, if you pour new wine into old wineskins, the fermenting process produces gas, and the skins just burst. They go bang if they're old and are unable to stretch with the new wine. So what is this new wine that he's talking about? What is the new revelation of God that will alter or even abolish the current Jewish religious practices? Well, as Jesus was saying these things, a series of events began to unfold that give us the answers and show us how it is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and abolishes 
the old religious practices. Jesus is solving the problems that the Old Testament religions, that the people were aware of because of the Old Testament law, but could not solve. They need Christ. Jesus moves us, if you like, from a shadow to reality, the prophecy of things to come, and then the things are here, from ceremonial holiness, where we did, whether the Jews did these religious practices to represent holiness, to now absolute holiness, because Jesus has died for their sins, literal holiness. And we see this happening as these next few events unfold. Look at verse 18 and 19. While he was saying these things, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has just died, come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Now, if you were here last year for our Leviticus series, hopefully you kind of like, put your hand on her, he can't do that, she's died, he'll become unclean. That's what Leviticus taught us, you can't touch a dead body because if you touch a dead body, you become unclean. If anyone knows this law, it's a synagogue leader. It's a Jewish leader. He knows the law, he knows the rules, and yet in his desperation, understandable desperation, his daughter's just died, he comes and he throws himself at the mercy of Jesus and says, Jesus, I hope and I think that if you come and touch her, you won't become unclean, but she'll live. He's desperate, understandably. And he comes to Jesus in faith. And Jesus goes. And his disciples follow. And as he's on the way, something else happens. Look at verse 20 and 21. Just then a woman who'd been subject to bleeding for 12 years nonstop came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. Very, very brave of her to go out in public when she's unclean. She's ceremonially unclean. She's supposed to be removed from people, but she's faithful, she's bold. She goes to Jesus in a crowd. If she gets found out, she knows it'll be scandalous. But she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And again, physical contact, even on the garment, under the old Levitical law, would render Jesus ceremonially unclean. Anything that represents death or is death itself is unclean blood represents death under the old levitical law but this woman in her desperation has likely been driven to accept or hope that in the case of jesus things will be different the old law might be changed the old law might be fulfilled might be renewed might be abolished the law of death the law of uncleanness, unholiness, could it be changed through Jesus? She hopes, and the synagogue leader hopes, and they do not hope in vain. Verse 22, Jesus turned, he saw her, he said, take heart, your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that very moment. Imagine the life change for that woman who was unable to be part of her community for 12 years, unable to go to the temple and worship her God for 12 years in Christ, her life is made drastically different and new. The reason God gave good laws 
prohibiting physical contact with death or blood is that it symbolizes death and we need to understand sin leads to death these laws help to explain it sin leads to death and these physical laws help them understand that sin leads to broken relationship with god you cannot worship at the temple if you're unclean they got that because of these physical laws but jesus is making everything new faith in jesus is what heals them and notice that matthew points out the faith of the people who go to jesus in this passage he points out they had faith in jesus faith in jesus the paralyzed man's friends had faith because of your faith your friend is forgiven of his sins the law is once and for all fulfilled in christ's life and death and resurrection and again in order to affirm that this is indeed what's happening jesus is fulfilling and abolishing old testament law jesus himself touches the girl he holds the dead girl's hand he speaks in such a way that reminds us of the old testament expectation of the new age and it's easy to miss it look at verse 23 when jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd people playing the pipes they were mourning this is a normal mourning ceremony he said go away the girl is not dead but asleep he knows full well that she's dead but the prophet daniel perhaps unlike any other old testament prophet wrote this revelation knowing that it awaited a time of fulfillment in the future in daniel chapter 12 multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting life others to shame and everlasting contempt jesus wasn't obligated to explain himself to the crowd but his words reveal that the age of the resurrection of the new age has come she's not dead but asleep and those who are asleep will rise to be awake to be alive some to everlasting life some to everlasting death but sadly this was lost on the crowd and they laughed at him verse 25 they laughed at him after the crowd had been put outside he went in took the girl by the hand and she got up and this news spread throughout the whole region look again we're focusing on the physical he took her by the hand he did not become unclean she became alive and the word there originally is that not that she got up but literally she was raised up to new life jesus is bringing in the new age an era anticipated by the old testament scriptures when god's glorious kingdom is established and the subjects of the kingdom do the opposite of fasting and mourning they celebrate because jesus has come the old has gone the new is here the new age has come they're rejoicing jesus has reversed the effects of sin and death look at verse 33 the second half the crowd was amazed and said sorry verse 33 in your bibles the crowd was amazed and said nothing like this has ever been seen in israel really 
nothing like this ever? Can you think of some amazing things in the Old Testament? They would have known about the ten plagues, they would have known about the Passover, the crossing of the Red Sea, the miracle at Jericho, God's visit atop Mount Sinai, the miracles of Elijah and Elisha, but nothing like this has ever been seen. They're right. This is new and extraordinary. Jesus replied, go back and report to John the Baptist who's now in prison what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And what's the last thing say? The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Not the materially poor, the spiritually poor. Those who don't have Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Thousands of people surround us right now and in our lives who are spiritually bankrupt, destitute. And we have the words of eternal life, don't we? We have the good news that we enjoy, don't we? We have the ministry of reconciliation. Jesus is making everything new. So how are we to live in these last days? Well, a couple of things as I wrap up. Now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. It doesn't matter how much melanin's in their skin to make it different colours. It doesn't matter where they've come from. It doesn't matter what accent they have with their mouth, if it's my accent or a different accent to me. It doesn't matter how much money they have in the bank. None of those things matter. We no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. We regard them from a spiritual point of view. Are they spiritually infinitely wealthy because they have Christ? Or are they spiritually completely bankrupt? Because they don't. That's all that really matters in the end. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We understand who he is. People came and just saw a man for a while until they learned who he was, most clearly at the cross. If anyone's in Christ, the new creation is gone. The old has gone. Our old ways of living for ourselves, of living for worldly endeavours as a priority, gone. And the new has come. We have the ministry of reconciliation from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us this spectacular task to do in these last days. We have no fear as we do this. For Christ is with us. But nor do we have complacency, for we live in the last days and the time is short. We live in God's grace. We are in Christ. God is our friend. We have nothing to fear. So armed with Christ and his word, we go out into the world with nothing to fear. But we're not complacent. We know time is short. The Pharisees rejected Christ. We must be careful that we continue 
to worship Christ, to read his word, to be devoted to him in prayer, to be on about what he has given us to be on about, not get complacent. You ask someone from Sydney, how are you going? Ask someone from this church, how are you going? They'll say busy. Ask me how I'm going, I'll say busy. What are we busy doing? We need to reorientate our priorities to be on about our primary priority, if we haven't already. The ministry of reconciliation. We can't be complacent. Friends, we live in a culture that is rapidly turning more and more against Christ. And we can't be complacent. Like the Roman Empire persecuted Christians, so our governments are heading in that direction. I'm confident we will see persecution of Christians more and more and more as time goes on. And I'm not just talking about mask wearing. That's not a big deal. That's not a persecution. I'm talking about what's happening in Victoria. I'm talking about what's happening in Canada where a pastor's been locked up for running a Christian church. But we won't fear and we won't be complacent because Christ is with us. We have no fear, nor do we have laziness or apathy, but urgent compassion for the thousands around us who are spiritually poor. We live in the last days. Jesus will return soon. We need to urgently preach the message of reconciliation into our communities. COVID made that hard. 50 days of our community transmission gives me great confidence that it's not going to be so hard. It was never impossible, it just got heaps harder. But it's getting easier and that's great, praise God. We have the message that reunites people with their creator God, the message of reconciliation between God and man and we must pass it on. You have the words of eternal life. Be bold in sharing them with anyone you know. Matthew, the tax collector, couldn't help himself. He threw a party and invited his friends when Jesus called him. The blind men were asked to keep the news quiet by Jesus. They couldn't help themselves. They went out and told everyone they knew what had happened to them. We've been told to keep it quiet. We've been told to share the good news. What do we have to do that's more important than sharing the good news of the gospel? The problem is it's hard. And we don't know where to start. And that's where we want to help you as a church. Just yesterday, we talked about as a leadership team, we want to start to get back into evangelism slowly. What's the, what's the one little next step for you as a follower of Jesus in sharing the good news of the gospel? You might not be the kind of person who can bash your neighbor's door down and you know, hit them with the great news of the gospel. I had a conversation with one of my kids years ago when they were little, and they discovered for the first time that not everybody trusts in Jesus. And they discovered that their neighbours don't trust in Jesus. And they said, what do you mean? How come they don't go to church? Well, they don't trust in Jesus. What do you mean they don't trust in Jesus? Well, I'm not sure they know about Jesus. Well, we have to go tell them. Let's go tell them now. What are we, doing? What are we waiting for? <laughs> it was such a challenge. It was such a rebuke to me. And maybe you're not the kind of person who feels confident to just barrel up to your neighbours. But we have growth groups and we have a church. We have plans for talking about how to do evangelism in growth groups soon uh, off the back of easter and off the back of our relaunch with our new name we want to chat about evangelism this year how do we get back into it if you're doing zero evangelism don't feel guilty feel excited about this opportunity that you have this god-given commission a holy spirit working in you 
to help you. Be excited about evangelism and, and, and start to think, how can, I, how can I do it? Who can I share the gospel with? Chat to your growth groups. Help me, I've got these people. I don't know where to start. And I think together, I think we need to utilise one another more as followers of Jesus to help evangelise our friends. It's easier to share the gospel with your friend's friend than it is with your friend. Did you catch that? It's easier to share the gospel with your friend's friend than it is with your own friend. Because with your own friend, you know, the stakes are high. But with your friend's friend, the stakes are much lower. If they come and get a bit offended by you, it doesn't matter too much, as long as they don't get offended. <laughs> you understand? So we need to get together as Christians, get our non-Christian friends, our Christian friends together in whatever space it is, whether it's a, a lunch or a, or a dinner or a mountain biking outing or a, a, I don't know, jewellery making club or whatever, uh, get Christians and non-Christians together in the same space to chat about this wonderful gospel we have. We are in the last days. We need not mourn, we need not fast. We have God with us by his Holy Spirit. I'm excited. I hope you're just a little bit more excited than you were when you walked in this morning. I'm going to pray for us, that God will help us, and no doubt he will. Loving Father and Almighty God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came. We thank you that he has brought the new age. The Messiah is here. We thank you that he's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us, that we have you indwelling us by your Holy Spirit. We need not fear. We need not cower in the darkness or in the, in the, in the hiding in our homes. Lord, embolden us by your Holy Spirit to get out there and share the good news with anyone that we can, with Gregory Hills, with Gledswood Hills, with our, our own neighbourhoods, with our own friends, with our own colleagues. God, many of us don't know where to start. We don't know how to do it. We don't know how to strike up that conversation. So we ask that you help us. Help us to work together as a church to help one another. Help us to use each other as a resource to share the gospel with our friends. If we've got a friend in church who's awesome at sharing the gospel, help us to put them in a room uh, with our friends that the gospel might be shared. Lord, we know, because you've told us that we live in the last days, and Lord, we know you've given us this ministry of reconciliation. So we're saying, please help us, God, to get on about sharing the good news. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, please join me as we continue in prayer. Father, thank you for sending us your son, the Christ, who has ushered in a new age. Uh, through him, we have been born again to a living hope. We are a new creation. It's a truth that can be so hard to grasp in light of how lowly and humble our circumstances can be. And by faith, help us to take hold of this truth and help us to live as people of the new age with joy and eager expectation. Help us to see others with Jesus' eyes to regard people not as the world does, but as you do. Help us to see the desperate need for people to hear this life-giving gospel and give us a sense of urgency for evangelism. We have the words of eternal life. Please give us boldness and love as we seek to share Jesus with others. Father, we commit to you now, Night Church. What an encouragement it is to hear of their love for one another and for the Lord Jesus and for their growth and maturity in Christ. We thank you for gathering them together as a church under Jesus and for the partnership in the gospel that we have with them. And we pray that according to the riches of your glory, you may grant that they may be strengthened by your spirit so that Christ might dwell in their hearts through faith. 
and that they may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all your fullness. May you continue to keep and protect them in the faith and cause them to be a bold witness to you in the community that many might come to know Jesus through them and be saved. We also commit to you this school, Gledswood Hills Public. We pray for the leadership, the teachers and the auxiliary staff of this school, that you will bless them with wisdom and love and endurance as they educate and form the children of Gledswood Hills. Thank you for the leadership of their principal, Lisa Whitfield, and for the great relations that our church has with her. Thank you for opening up the school to us that we can meet here week to week. We pray for scripture in this school, that this avenue would remain open to us, and that many children will be blessed by this ministry and come to know Jesus, their Lord and Saviour. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.